Welcome to Fresh Take, your favorite weekly podcast that delivers a healthy dose of information pertaining to healthy lifestyles, organic and sustainable agriculture, and numerous topics related to the environment. Thanks for tuning in. Our industry experts are here to provide you with a fresh take on topics that can help you optimize your lifestyle and well-being. Welcome to our latest episode of Fresh Steak Podcast. Uh, today, we're very excited to welcome Raymond Warren. He is the founder of Infinite Science Farms, and we're really happy to have Ray with us today. We're talking about urban farming and farm alliances, and uh, we'll discuss a lot of those topics during the episode today. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started uh, with Infinite Science Farms? Yes, yes. Uh, Infinite Zion Farms. We started on the 20 acre farm site, uh, I think about five or six years ago, a long time ago. And uh, the initiative was wanting to bring uh, local food and produce to food deserts um, in, a, in the popular area. But my passion grew out of losing my father to prostate cancer at age 59. And, and his death is when I started learning, uh, or doing this sickness rather, I started learning about more healthier eating options, alkaline versus city-based foods. And it really made a difference with his passing on how I view the urban or Black community and the foods that were not there in the community as well. So we wanted to start this operation. I always wanted to have a farmer's market on a farm. I've seen so many farmer's markets that were on business corners or street corners. I want to create a concept there. But out of his passing, I told people one thing I learned in engineering is energy is neither lost or destroyed. Was transferred from one thing to the next. And in this passing, I absorbed the spirit in farming. Um, I learned from my dad and my great-grandmother, uh, Esther McCooley, in Lavo Lake City, North Florida. So I learned two styles of farming. South Florida, you grew more tropical trees. And North Florida, you grew more collard greens, mustards, turnips, things of that nature. Uh, so I combined both worlds, interested in knowledge base that I have to create infinite on farms and bringing local produce organically uh, naturally to the black community and urban communities. But uh, my father's my passion and he's the reason why I have the energy and spirit of absorbing his loss and transferring that loss into a positive movement to help educate the, the community at large. That's really cool. Uh, and, and as you said, sometimes these very challenging um, and difficult experiences can lead to great things. And obviously with your father's blessing i guess even you know you you guys yeah. are doing the work that you're doing right now that's yeah. great um so in terms of the actual setup or the way that Scion farms works because it is an urban farm and you know yes. this month we're talking about urban agriculture urban farming and what that means can you maybe share with us a little bit of about oh, how the, yeah. the project works and, and what how you guys <laughs> yeah. define urban farming Oh, yes. Uh, we, we, we're defined as urban farming by actually having food and produce storage on site. Most community gardens you see throughout the urban neighborhood don't have access to an actual store to store the produce and fruits for, use for, later, for later uses and also to uh, distribute to the local community neighborhoods where we bought in refrigeration um, and freezing along with uh, multiple buildings and a greenhouse. And to build that space where we are now, South River Farms, we moved 25 tons of earth and rock to build that space. Uh, it was a long project. We're about 80% built out now, but uh, building it out initially, uh, we had to unload our own telephone poles because that property hadn't had electricity in almost 20 years prior to us being there. 
And uh, there were other programs out there before. I'm not sure they can complete the program, whatever happened. But we came in, they wiped the place clean, like literally a flat land. I can show you pictures when we first started. But 25 tons later, we moved earth, rock, glass, and uh, it was it was a feat. Um, but we completed the urban farm, and now we have banana trees, a great vineyard. So we're teaching people how to grow a vineyard, take care of a vineyard, and even giving some of the local residents in the Paramount community grape samples. And sometimes the grapes from the trees. And I went out to Lake Ridge Winery to do training uh, with the local uh, managers there, Ron. And he taught me the, the art of uh, buying a grape six hours later. So, so much that goes into urban farming, but particularly around the education for the local community and teaching sustainability. Because these neighborhoods are so dependent upon processed food because there's nothing around. There's no grocery store, any healthy eating there. Mm-hmm. So it's bringing the people in and teaching them how to grow regular produce that they'd never seen before. Most one a young lady thought okra grew under the ground and I realized <laughs> okra grows on a tree. It's <laughs> just simple things you'd never imagine mm-hmm. that people and, and are seeing, but we're an educated community. And once they try to the natural produce without all the pesticides and sprays and things applied to them to make them last longer, the taste is just, just magnified and people mm-hmm. fell in love with the garden there. So the urban farm, we're definitely teaching raised bed gardening, in-ground gardening, and farming, uh, greenhouse farming, how to propagate plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a beautiful venture for us. It's tough, but we, we made it happen. So uh, as you said, education is a big component of how you're doing things. But the other thing that's a bit unique about um, Scion Farms is the approach that you take as a connector in terms of maybe connecting the community with other yes. farms. Is that correct? Uh, building yes, an alliance yes. in a way. Yes, sir. We have an alliance where we build with other farmers as well, and we also help support other farmers and people who want to build gardens and build other locations. I can say where with Sharif, our master gardener, he left to go to Ghana, Africa. He just purchased five acres over in Ghana, and we still send him support, like tillers and different equipment all the way in Ghana. So our initiative expands way beyond the U.S. all the way to Ghana, Africa now, where our master gardener, wow. Sharif Shabazz, He's over there uh, building. I can show you pictures of the farms he's building and the things we taught each other. And he always say, hey, I can't wait to have you come back over to check out the, the gardens here. But, yes, we are. Our goal is to help expand the garden network through other alliances and other groups. And we have other markets and other people that come to us to purchase different greens and vegetables and produce and other restaurants as well. And also helping other gardeners out. They come there to train. Sometimes we build raised beds for them. And other locations as well. So it's our, it's our goal to expand sustainability and urban farms and urban communities. Uh, that's much needed. So much you're currently needed. in Apopka, but in terms oh, of... Oh, no, we, we, we left Apopka probably about five years ago. Then we moved downtown because we saw the demand in the Paramore community and also the history there. The Paramore community is very deep and rich. Okay. And uh, we saw the demand was very heavy there. And but we left Apopka about... Uh, yeah, we left a couple of years ago and moved down uh, downtown Orlando. Thank you so much for making oh, that, you know, clarification because uh, you started in a pop cup, but now you are indeed an urban and getting back to urban yes, agriculture. Urban if you're downtown yes. Orlando, that makes you, <laughs> you know, urban uh, an urban farm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so uh, people who are listening and maybe are interested in, you know, starting their own urban farms and building these alliances can you know they also talk to you guys and and how does that you continue to 
you know, make those connections with people throughout the state. If you are doing even connections overseas, like you say, over in Ghana, it means yeah. that, you know, the, the reach is, is quite significant. Yes, it is. We, we communicate back and forth. And uh, if anyone interested, I was telling them, come on to the guard. My first goal there was to gain the respect of the community there because things have happened in those urban environments with gentrification and things that are going on where they mm-hmm. feel that the group is not there for them. The first thing I did was, hey, I want to find Miss Gladys, Miss Williams. I went across the street to the neighborhood. And I said, hey, what do you all want to grow over here? Mm-hmm. And they told me, we like mm-hmm. collard greens and mustards. And I said, okay. And that's exactly what we started growing. And I started giving them samples of the garden. And the, the main important piece of building an urban farm anywhere is gaining the respect of the community. Because like, as, as I said, other organizations are coming and trying to do what we've done, but they were unable to establish that connection. Mm-hmm. And now this platform is going to a larger prospect to into universities as well. Where universities starting to realize there's a disconnect between uh, the urban farms and agriculture and universities so now we're working with a lot of local colleges bridging the gap and making a connection with local students at the college level mm-hmm. into the actual urban environment because uh, it's definitely a grown a growing uh industry since COVID 19 hit i think that's when farming gardening really picked up and the mm-hmm. cost of everything as well mm-hmm. yes you know absolutely and, and we've been talking for quite a few episodes <clears throat> recently and how COVID actually did oh, you know yeah bring a lot of changes and some of them really positive changes to our communities. So, um, and and one of the challenges, especially when it comes to urban farms is, you know, the location of where the gardens and and where the farm is going to be located. Um, So I'm sure that you have uh, a lot that you can probably tell people or or give ideas and recommendations to people who are trying to find that perfect location. Absolutely. The location is critical. Like I said, South Sherman Farm was one of the toughest locations we had to build in because, one, uh, in an urban setting, it's unfortunate. These highways and roadways are built to design to go through the black neighborhoods as an attention to neighborhoods not to thrive because Paramore historically was a rich neighborhood and, and Church Street was originally Black Wall Street. And just the Wells Built Museum was an actual hotel where all the jazz great stayed. And, and each time I drive to that to our urban farm across Division Avenue. And the history of Division Avenue, as it stands today, is still divides the black and white side of town. Because you can literally stand at the Amway Arena on South Street at Division Avenue and see this black and white contrast difference from mm-hmm. one looking across the street to the other side. And I want to teach that real, I started playing like Brantford Marshallis, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, the urban neighborhood like, hey man, what's going on with this jazz music? What's going on with this? <laughs> and I said, this is what Paramore sound like back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. And I started educating them on what Paramore really was. And I told people Paramore just to become this impoverished place uh, just because people want to be poor. This was systemically done mm-hmm. to institutionalize racism as mm-hmm. well. So I, I bring that thought process to say why Division Avenue is still there. It still divides the different sides of town. I want to break that wall down and help people realize you can come into these neighborhoods and make the proper connection to the community. Mm-hmm. And it, it's frustrating to me sometimes. The only time I see different people and cultures, and when there's a basketball game or soccer game or concert, that's the only involvement that I see. But other than that, it's like no one touches the area. And it's just unfortunate that so many homeless and people there thrive off of $20 parking spots. I was on the farm last night and saw a parking lot across the street where the whole neighborhood, everyone's trying to get a few bucks from 
and they're not the owners of these lots, but the owners pay them pennies on a dollar. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate to see all these empty lots can be converted into other urban farms mm-hmm. and other sustainable practices. And uh, just mm-hmm. some of the things you see that want to change the narrative of parable. Well, but it does sound like you you are making a lot of progress, you know, oh, yeah. and, and that you do have success stories. Oh, yeah. It, uh, from what you're telling us that, you know, that divide, it seems that now you're getting perhaps people that would normally don't come to, you know, your neighborhood or, oh, yeah. you know, the places uh, and see that there's an urban farm there and then there's a farmer's market there and then that they can buy, you know, a lot of really good food um, and then, you know, get hopefully, you know, get make those connections and get to know, you know, the people that live right across the street from them in, in some ways. Is that is yeah, that, that what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the narrative has definitely grown. Now we're uh, merging. I just got off the phone with University of Florida. They wanted mm-hmm. to come in and help out with helping write recipes. And uh, one of our latest um, partnerships was Rollins College and St. Thomas University. Uh, I flew out to Minnesota mm-hmm. to speak on a conference as a part of the Rollins College team, speaking about urban farming and how important it is. And now Rollins College is now joining us in the fight to help coming in to help volunteer with typically you wouldn't see Rollins College in those neighborhoods. Like I said, we're now bridging that gap, realizing there's a cultural difference that needs to be addressed. And through our farm, we are going to now have Rollins College students coming out to the farm, helping us out CSA and volunteering, helping learn the community, learn the urban environment, how to grow, because it's very different. Because one, you have like a farm surrounded by highway. So the air quality is going to be a little bit less. Also, you're going to have this wind factor. And this year on Urban Farm, the bugs got so, were so bad, I had to release 6,000 ladybugs uh, on the farm just, for the, just to fight the plants. And it, it scared my wife because I put, unfortunately, I put the ladybugs in our refrigerator in the house and not mm-hmm. put them in the refrigerator in the garage. And she uh-huh. opened the refrigerator up and she screamed like, what in the heck is this? <laughs> I said, hey, I'm so sorry. I said, why do we have bugs in the refrigerator? I said, there are ladybugs in the garage. Okay, put the ladybugs out in the garage, in the refrigerator, not in here with the kids' food. I was like, all right, it's the last one deal. But <laughs> ladybugs are a great natural way to prevent spraying all of these pesticides or DDTs or chemical sprays, they eat the aphids and the spite and the mites and uh, ladybugs, they eat, one can eat about a hundred per day. You know, it, it's, it's so great that you're telling that story and it's so relatable to me talking about, you know, keeping ladybugs in refrigerators. When I was uh, uh, a student at the University of Florida, we were doing research with greenhouse uh, crops and we would do the same thing. We would, you know, get the uh, ladybugs, put them in the refrigerator, just like you said. Of course, it in it, it was a little bit different for us because, you know, this was a, a research unit. Uh, so no one would, you know, open the refrigerator and scream and say, what is all these bugs no, doing no. here, you know, with our food? So, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of times in urban settings, people probably are also not used to seeing ladybugs anymore and knowing well, that it is a beneficial insect and that there's many other beneficial insects that can do a really good job of, you know, keeping your pest at bay. So that's great that you're also teaching uh, people about these things. Of course, it's probably not easy sometimes with a family and your wife finding ladybugs in the refrigerator. (laughs) But but at the same time, it is something that um, I think it's really great, and especially young kids and and sometimes students who didn't realize uh, that you could do. Uh, when uh, when you're in an urban setting. 
Also, even the bees, uh, we have 30,000 bees out there producing our honey. And I'll take samples over to the neighborhood and residents and say, hey, uh-huh. try some of your local honey. And they're amazed. One guy tried the honey. He said, man, this is beautiful. He didn't even say this is good. He said, man, this is beautiful. Just the taste of the local honey that's made right there on the farm. We have about 30,000 bees out there producing honey now. And it's very been bees, obviously, very beneficial to your garden or your farm because yeah. they help cross-pollinate. Um, everything out there. I mean, from the moringa trees, the banana trees, the mango trees, the avocado, whatever you have there. And I teach them they're social creatures. I was I was doing a tour one day and two bees landed on my arm in the tour. The, the people were like, oh, aren't you scared? I said, no, they're just checking me out. They're just because the bees, they, they know you. They're social creatures. So they know your smell, your pheromones. They know your face. They can that, see everything about you. And that's and another just, thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they crawl in my hand, and they, they were no longer afraid. I said, it's amazing how the stigma of, oh, my God, a beehive. And, I said, and one couple, they didn't realize they were standing right behind uh, a beehive. It was literally right behind them, and they didn't realize. I said, there's a beehive right behind them. I said, whoa. They right. freaked out. I was like, they're yeah. not bothering you. If you're not sort of getting in their way, they're going to do their job, and they're not going to bother you. So that's yeah. that's absolutely right. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, the resources, because, you know, with – Everything that you've done since you started, which I believe is you know, 2016, I think you said 2016. Yeah, Obviously, having learned over the years, you know, what it takes, the resources that are required are probably you're just, you know, enormous. Uh, do you oh, have some yeah. tips and some things that you can share with us in terms of Ooh, resources yeah. and the connections that you need to make? Yes, uh, uh, COVID-19 really was a, a turning point for us because uh, make a list of your resources and their sources because before we, our primary compost uses mushroom compost. And mm-hmm. after COVID-19, the place that we normally got it, our compost from was no longer doing compost. So it's like, oh boy, what's going on? And knowing where to buy different products from, this store may carry one product and the other store doesn't. So it's definitely making a list of all of your resources and what you're implementing implementing onto your farm because that's going to make a, 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 a great deal of whether you survive or you're going to struggle. Case in point, we had a store shed, an 8 by 15 foot store shed. Before COVID-19, the store shed was $1,200. It was, it was $1,200. After COVID-19 hit, it jumped up to $1,750. And that for that threw a monkey wrench all of our existing list of resources in because we have to find different places now. So it's a constant struggle and maintaining a database. So I say get an Excel sheet, put all those links down or telephone numbers down and keep that on the Google Drive because those resources may change. They may go up or down in price as well. But uh, having a wood, uh, wood resource, all this time I've been going to different department stores and realizing there was a Thomas Lumber right downtown Orlando, like literally two miles from the farm. But yet I'm driving five to six miles out to the other stores and realize, oh, wait a minute, I had no idea this was right. And that was a great resource because they had the size poles and everything looking for. And when you're building infrastructure, anyone who's building an urban farm, infrastructure is your most critical aspect of your farm and garden design and layout. If you don't have those things in place when you start the garden, that you're going to be in a, for a world of hurt uh, mm-hmm. because we're producing over 497 pounds of produce per month from a 0.3 acre farm. People are like, how do you do that? Just, right. And you have to calculate the spacing, how wide the plants grow. It's so much you have to calculate into it. And I did it. I did the work. I did the garden design and layout. And sure enough, we produce 497.18 pounds per month of collard greens, mustards, and other produce 
in that small space. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also doing your research for raised bed farming versus in-ground farming because your mm-hmm. crops are going to vary depending on how you choose to grow them. Yeah, that's great. And thank you so much for sharing a lot of that with us because it does take a lot of planning, all of the considerations that, as you've explained them, uh, are, are part of making uh, sure that, you know, the farm is going to be successful at what they do. Um, what about in terms of consumers and how the consumers and the people that listen to our podcast or the people that you interact with can um, find out about how to support urban farms and, you know, um, Zion farms for, well, in this particular well, case? Definitely, definitely. Support is always needed. The main thing that's critical uh, is uh, volunteering. Um, and uh, you can find us on our website at www.infinitezionfarms.org. Don't mm-hmm. put dot .com, dot .org. Dot or org. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you Google us, a whole bunch mm-hmm. of all the Instagram, the Facebook items, and all the newscast uh, things that have come up uh, on and about the farm, uh, those are some of the best ways to reach us. But the website, you can schedule volunteering. Uh, you can find out about uh, the volunteer days, the different events we're going to have. And now that we're past the rainy season, we're going to now start having events on the farm, farm the table events, different events out there. Now that the hot weather and humidity has passed, so you will definitely be posting some future events on the farm. But uh, yes, volunteering um, is one of the main critical items that we that we can utilize through. Mm-hmm your listeners and we can also educate as well and we're gonna i've been debating about it for a while but i think we're gonna go ahead and start we have 25 beds on our farm and what i'm what, what i'm going to do i want to start leasing out some of those uh, raised beds so if anyone's interested in farming and gardening in a raised bed but, but don't want to necessarily apply the work to it they right. can lease one of our beds on our farm where we're out there to help them and educate them. Hey, you want to grow okay. tomatoes? Okay, what type of soil you need? Mm-hmm. So that's another aspect I want to add um, in the fall as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's great. Well, listen, Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been very enlightening. A lot of the information that you know, you've shared, we, we really appreciate the time that you've taken to explain how Cyan Farms got you know, started and, and the great work that you guys are doing. Yeah, I, I meant to bring up the history of the farm. I always, I always tell people, I'm not one of those new farmers, like, oh, we're just doing urban farming because it's cool now. This is uh, generational farming. Um, I'm a I'm fifth-generation farmer, and my farming goes back further than that um, to uh, my un- unfortunate slain uncle, uh, Julius July Perry, done, uh, done the uh, Koi Massacre. That's my great-great-uncle. He was also a farmer mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And my history goes a little bit further back to that, like 5,000 years uh, through uh, paternal DNA. I did my Af- African ancestry and 23 and me and come to find out I'm a descendant of Pharaoh Ramses III. So who would ever known that <laughs> 5,000 years later, I happened to Google him and he was known for farming and gardening. And I ended mm-hmm. up doing the same thing uh, genetically, <laughs> DNA wise. There you go. Yeah. So I'm doing yeah. it because it's in my heart and soul, not because it's cool. I just want to listen, listen to understand we're real farmers and real urban farmers. So yeah. uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to, you know, following Zion Farms and, and all of the yeah. great work that you guys are doing. Uh, and, and we really do thank you for, you know, joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. I appreciate the time as well. Look forward to talking soon. Thank you. Yes. I right, you. All right. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. As many of you already know, FOG is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. 
please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. We would really appreciate your support. 